Welcome to Pedagog, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, Eric Detweiler talks about digital rhetoric and media, teaching video games and podcasting, assessing multimodal assignments, and his forthcoming book titled Responsible Pedagogy. Eric Detweiler is an assistant professor in the English department at Middle Tennessee State University, where he is also helping develop a new undergraduate degree in public writing and rhetoric. His research and teaching focuses on writing pedagogy, rhetorical theory, digital media, and the intersections between those things. He hosts a podcast called Rhetoricity, and his first book, Responsible Pedagogy, Moving Beyond Authority and Mastery in Higher Education, will be published by Penn State University Press in late 2022. You can find out more about his work at rhetoric.org. That's R-H-E-T-E-R-E-C dot org. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Your teaching and research interests include digital rhetoric and media. How does digital rhetoric inform your understanding and approach to teaching writing? Yeah, for sure. Um, and I'll say before I launch in, I'm absolutely delighted to be here as well. I think we've got we've got a little bit of a mutual admiration society going on here. So um, thanks for having me. The answer to that question um, comes down a little bit to, to sort of what drew me to, to rhetoric and writing studies in the first place, um, which was an appreciation for its attention to the way that that writing kind of works in, in the everyday world and in sort of everyday genres. Um, you know, I, I'm sure like a lot of people who have PhDs in English, I grew up, you know, reading a lot of novels, you know, um, reading a lot of fiction. Um, but it was really the, the study of, you know, just how communication and writing works in, in everyday life that really got me interested in this field in the first place, um, from, you know, um, classroom and sort of academic communication to, um, you know, digital genres. Um, and so to, to my mind, when you're talking about and working with students um, with regard to that kind of writing, it's really hard not to think about digital technology a little bit at this point, because there's so few genres, you know, um, types of writing that aren't inflected in some way uh, by digital technology, you know, even if they're writing um, and you're and you're teaching students to write fairly you know, conventional academic genres, you know, 3000 word essays with with, a, you know, list of citations at the end or whatever, you know, so much of the teaching that I end up doing is like, here's how you set margins in Microsoft Word. Um, here's how to insert page numbers, stuff like that. Um, but just more broadly speaking, I mean, I, I think that that is something that is inextricable from from so many of our writing practices and the writing practices that students um, will be doing, are interested in doing, and, and so on and so forth. From you know uh, first year students up through um, you know students who are taking sort of upper level English and writing classes. You know in the classroom when when I'm talking to students about writing, I'm I'm often talking about digital rhetoric in terms of having them think about like, who would the audiences be um, for the kinds of writing that you do in the world? And this could be, you know, stuff like when you're thinking about how you caption an Instagram post um, or stuff that they're doing outside of academic contexts to, you know, if you were constructing in the future, sort of like academic or professional documents, like how would they circulate? How would you, you know, be thinking about what audiences might come to them, um, not just through like, the, the supervisor you submit it to or the teacher that you turn it into, um, but, but the way that it would move through the world in part because of, 
of digital technologies and how it would be structured, you know, anything from, you know, the multimodal aspects of, of a paper, um, other media you might bring in, um, you know, all of the stuff that goes into that kind of creative uh, process. Um, you know, there's, there's just so much there to me that you just can't take off the table at this point. And so, you know, just trying to help students uh, both get excited about writing by going like we can think about it in terms of these digital platforms and technologies um, that you are already well versed in some cases and not so well versed in others at using um, but also that are, are just I think practically speaking really important um, factors and sort of vectors to think about um, with with communication um, and with the kinds of writing that they're doing. I know some of your teaching also focuses on video games and podcasting. And I'm interested in hearing how you incorporate podcast in your writing classroom and what you would say are, are some of the affordances in, in using video games and podcast to teach first year writing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Thanks for asking that. Um, I guess I'll kind of move through through the curriculum and a couple different courses a little bit because there's sort of different answers um, to that question at in different contexts and in different classes that I teach. I mean, I think one of maybe the most, um, I don't know, straightforward kind of uh, modular ways that that I do that with podcasting um, is in first year writing classes. Um, so for example, this coming spring, I'll be teaching the second of our two semester first year writing sequence that we have at MTSU. Um, and I incorporate a, a decent number of podcast episodes into that course, kind of as like course, quote unquote, readings, um, course listenings, whatever you want to call them. With, I should mention, an eye to accessibility, you know, making sure I'm assigning podcasts that I have like transcripts and materials um, for students who, who need or would like that. One of the things that I, I will get into with students as we begin listening to some of those podcast episodes in that class and as they begin working on the writing projects that they're doing for the course, um, is the difference between writing for the ear, um, writing something that is primarily meant to be heard, and writing something that is primarily meant to be read, whether on the screen or uh, or on a printed page. Um, because I think, you know, there, there's very different types of writing that work well in those two environments. Um, even if you, you know, take an example, like if you read a lot of um, podcasting or kind of radio manuals that are talking about like how do you script for radio segments or something like that. Um, you want such shorter sentences, you know, take out all of those clauses, take out all of the uh, those periodic sentences in a lot of cases, not a universal, you know, rule, of course, but um, to make it a little bit easier for a listener who can't easily just like flip back to the last page or scroll back up, up the screen to be able to follow along and not kind of lost in, in a long sentence. And so I'll, I've done activities in the past where basically once students have some sense of, of podcasting, since you've still got a, a lot of students who come to college, you know, not really familiar with podcasts or if they are familiar with them with very sort of, you know, open-ended discussion podcasts that aren't uh, scripted. But once they're familiar with that, I'll ask them to take a little chunk of a project that they're working on and write two versions of it. One that is meant to be read and one that is meant to be listened to. Um, and what that allows in that class, even if it's just like a one day kind of one-off exercise is to try to get students thinking about the sort of rhetorical factors that go into writing when you're thinking about um, kind of, as I mentioned already, like who your audience is, how they're going to take something in, um, how it's meant to be sort of processed and, and encountered. Um, and that that's so different when you're uh, writing for podcasts 
podcasting versus when you're writing for like a written essay or something like that. And my hope there is that I can start to get students who I think, especially in first year classes, I don't know if this is common experience, but I feel like there's often not a sense of like context or audience for the writing they're doing for their courses. They just feel like this is all very abstract. You know, there's kind of this set of five paragraphy rules I kind of follow, but it's more about following those rules than it is thinking about audience um, and um, sort of, you know, effective and engaging communication. And I think once they start to do a little bit of comparison between those two media, I can start to go, okay, now notice here's what's actually working well when you are writing even a very conventional academic essay. Um, you know, this isn't just the like plain, you know, uh, unmarked kind of boring style of writing where you have, you know, you know, no style, no personality, no, no kind of conventions that you're following They're They're there. It's just very different than what you might get in, in a context like podcasting. And then, you know, when I'm moving further along in the curriculum, I've, I've been able very fortunately a few times to teach uh, a full-fledged like special topics course that's focused on, on essentially podcasting, um, thinking about the rhetorical affordances of recorded sound, um, how that diverges from or sort of overlaps with um, the, the possibilities of, of written text. Um, and one of the things that I get really excited about there is I think of myself as this is maybe a little odd, but, but sort of first and foremost, like a rhetoric person with, with no, you know, no insult intended to anybody who identifies more with script writing studies or, or composition or other kinds of key terms in the field. Um, but for me, what that's meant in a lot of ways is having a little bit of a foot in the rhetoric side of, of communication studies, um, and the sort of speech communication tradition that that uh, that, that field has often had, and one foot in kind of like the English sort of more writing focused side of rhetoric and writing studies. And one of the things that I get really excited about in that podcasting class is I think it's a great place to sort of bring those two together. Um, you know, there's this odd way that lots of people have have documented very thoroughly that like speech communication and written communication got like split off from each other in the way that they're now hosted um, in, uh, in universities in the US. Um, but I think it's a really cool place to begin to bring those back together and help students think uh, about like when you've got writing that's meshed with, um, with other kinds of spoken word, other kinds of oral presentation, um, you know, what are the rhetorical possibilities there? And so that class really moves students through a series of exercises where they're both um, writing and, and planning sort of audio projects and, you know, learning to do the, the production work and the sort of the oral delivery work that's involved there, building all the way up to a collaborative podcast series that the entire class creates together that's kind of the capstone for that course. And I'll pivot into video games, which is kind of an odd and, and different answer, which is even less than podcasting, which at least I've been doing for about a decade now, I did not anticipate video games uh, being a part of my teaching career back when I was like playing Sonic the Hedgehog in like 1995 or whatever. Honestly, we have a special topics um, gen ed course that we offer here. That's, that's a literature course. It's one of the only like literature courses that I teach. Um, but uh, basically shortly after I got to MTSU, you know, I looked at the listings of all the different topics um, 
that people were teaching. And there's some great topics people offer. You know, we've got disability literature courses, we've got, you know, environmentalism and literature, all kinds of different stuff. And I was like, okay, what can I add that will be somewhat unique to this list? And I was like, I'll do a video games class. Um, so that's been a little bit more of a way of, you know, um, getting students in that gen ed context to, um, you know, think about narrative, think about how um, interactive media, interactive fiction, video games more specifically, um, you know, sort of speak to and, and add new things into the mix when it comes to theorizing narrative, theorizing stories, um, thinking about what makes them tick um, in the way that, um, you know, English studies has kind of long done. And then I I've taught once a more rhetorically focused upper upper level version of a video games course where we were thinking a little bit more about sort of the, the cultural impact and reach of, of video games, which I mean, from economics to politics to, to culture, I mean, it's just like influencing so many arenas of, of life, I think in ways that, that some people are, are very much aware of and some people may not be. And so getting students to sort of write about video games a little bit more in terms of um, sort of cultural criticism and things like that. Um, and then in all those courses, I tend to make a lot of use of a, a interactive storytelling tool called Twine, which is kind of just like a digital choose your own adventure that students can build without really much background in computer programming or anything like that. Um, and again, just getting students in both those courses to start thinking about what is writing, even in the sort of broader framework of a fairly academically focused course, start to look like um, as it circulates in the world, as you're starting to work with interactive media, work with the kinds of technologies that, that drive a lot of writing, um, both in and beyond um, their, their classes and their future kind of professional uh, trajectories. There's a ton of stuff that I have posted on my website in terms of like teaching resources, if anybody's interested in digging into this stuff more. Uh, and that is just Rhett Eric. Sorry for the bad pun, but that's just rhetoric with an E where the O would be as an Eric. Um, RhettEric.org slash teaching. Um, and I've got a bunch of syllabi and a bunch of kind of exercises and sort of assignment prompts there uh, if folks are interested in, in digging into that a little bit more. How do you assess video or audio-based projects? Another another great question. Yeah, and something that I'm I'm constantly reworking <laughs> and trying to do better at. But I will say I, I, I was very fortunate that pretty early in my um, teaching career, I was able to start adopting kind of what might fall under like the broad heading of like an of ungrading frameworks in my classes. So there's a system called the learning record. And if anybody's interested in reading more about that, you can just go to learningrecord.org. Um, and one of the people uh, who is really involved in sort of um, adapting that and sort of establishing its relevance for higher education in particular um, was Peg Cyberson, who was a faculty member uh, at the University of Texas when I was there for my PhD work. And I taught while I was there um, in the digital writing and research lab, um, which is kind of a research lab, but also partnered with some, um, some computer classrooms um, that we had on campus where we were able to teach um, since we were working in that lab with uh, a real kind of encouragement and push to have students that were taking classes in those rooms do a lot of multimodal sort of digitally intensive projects, you know, to make use of the, the skill sets we were developing um, as graduate students who were staffing that lab, um, as well as the sort of technology that was um, very fortunately for us at our disposal in those classrooms. But as, you know, I'm sure you're aware of, given some of your interest in multimodality, like as soon as you start to get into 
those kinds of projects, it becomes so much more challenging to develop any kind of like standardized rubric or framework that will speak to every iteration of the different kinds of projects that students might do. You know, I think there's a lot of really cool frameworks in, in the field for that kind of thing, like Jody Shipka's work in Toward a Composition Made Whole. Um, that book provides some really cool ways to help students think about their goals, think about their choices on those kinds of projects. All that to say that the, the framework that we were encouraged and allowed, which is an amazing opportunity as, as a graduate student to use, was the learning record, which is much more kind of driven by uh, reflection that students are doing on the work that's happening in their projects um, that is is much more focused in the way that it was it was typically deployed at UT on um, having students get a lot of qualitative feedback from the instructor along the way in a course, not so much quantitative grades, and then sort of make the case for the work that they'd done um, and the grade that they uh, had achieved in the course in some reflective writing that they'd done that was very evidence-based, tied to going like, if you look back at these projects, here's what you can see me uh, learning to do or how I'm developing in terms of the learning objectives for this course and so on and so forth. And so that's been something that's that's been with me for, for a really long time. And what that tends to look like for me now is at the beginning of the class, we spend a lot of time talking about um, the course outcomes, the learning objectives, not in a super dogmatic way, but in just like, this is what this course is meant to help you learn to do. Um, and based on that, students write kind of a statement of goals. They are like, based on these objectives, here's what I want to accomplish in this course. Um, there's some elements that sort of resemble contract grading, um, but there's a, maybe a little bit more of an emphasis on like, how am I going to move through this course and sort of what work am I going to do? Um, and then at the midterm and the final, students write uh, kind of a self-evaluation where based on some pretty detailed grading criteria um, that I've developed for that course, they say, here is the grade um, that I'm arguing for in this class at this point. And here's the evidence that I've got to back that up. Um, so it's not based on like the quantitative um, grade they have achieved on past projects. It's based on contextualizing their work in terms of what they've learned, including things where they've really beefed it, you know, things where they did not come into the class with a super strong knowledge of, of the technology that they're working with, um, and just being able to account for the work that they've done and sort of talk me through it. And what that's allowed, especially in the podcasting class, is like, you know, if I've got one student who's an English major, really interested in being a creative writer, might have, you know, lots of writing experience, but mostly in the realm of fiction or poetry. And then I've got another student who is coming from, you know, MTSU's uh, recording industry program, which is a pretty well-known program, which means they're probably coming in with better audio production skills than I will ever have, um, but not necessarily a, a huge interest in writing. With both those students, I can sort of assess the work that they're doing on their own terms um, and based on sort of where they start and how they're moving through the course, not based on one student having really beautiful audio production, but just starting out in terms of learning to script and another student who is opening an audio editor for the first time in their life, uh, but might really have a lot of experience with, you know, how to get sort of words on the page. So that, that's been my main thing, you know, using, using the learning record um, has really, I think, opened up a lot of cool sort of pedagogical opportunities and experimentations for me and has been a way I can give my students a lot more 
room to maneuver and sort of encounter the course on their own terms, um, especially with those kinds of video and audio based projects, whether they're one offs um, in, in a first year class or, you know, sort of the whole the whole thing in a, in a special topics course. Your forthcoming book, Responsible Pedagogy, Moving Beyond Authority and Mastery in Higher Education, will be published later this year. Can you talk to me about your book and your motivations for writing and what you hope teachers and readers will take away from it? Yeah, thanks so much for, for asking about that. This book project really grew out of, of one of the things that has just been both an academic, scholarly, but also just um, kind of everyday question for me since I started teaching, which is like, how do we talk about, make sense of, theorize, and put into practice the relationship between teachers and students, both presently um, in, in, you know, 21st century classrooms and throughout kind of the history of rhetorical education. And that's, you know, just one of those things that I think a lot of new teachers are thinking about, like, how do my students perceive me? What is this role I've been thrust into? Um, you know, what do I want to, you know, how do I want to present myself to my students? And, you know, you see all kinds of conversations about this from like, do I see myself or do I present myself as more of, you know, the sort of like stereotypical, um, you know, tweed jacket college professor? Am I, you know, more of a coach to my students? You know, what role do I want to sort of take here? Um, and, and so that's where this book really came from is just trying to make sense of like, where we have gotten um, that sense of like who teachers are and, and what rhetorical role they inhabit when it comes to students and other kinds of social and political structures. Um, and how do we navigate that, um, again, both kind of historically and contemporarily. So what this book became as I was, you know, kind of working through those questions um, is a way of, of thinking through some of the really predominant concepts that have driven how we talk about the relationship between students and teachers and, and what the sort of rationale for that relationship is over the course of, uh, of the sort of history of rhetorical education. The, the things that I'm really looking at um, in that book are, are first how for so long notions of authority and specifically teacherly authority were used to sort of ground that relationship, you know, that, that the, uh, the rhetoric teacher, the rhetorician, the writing teacher um, had some kind of authority, some kind of mastery over a cultural practice, a type of communication um, that they would would train students in. Um, and this wasn't always that kind of like, you know, quote unquote, like banking concept of education, but it was also often really premised on the notion of the teacher as this kind of master figure. Um, and, and I think for a lot of us now, there's been a switch, which is what I look at in, in kind of the second half of the book um, to a real focus on student agency, um, you know, making sense of and, and justifying what we do in the classroom, not in terms of our authority as teachers, but a little bit more in terms of the, the agency that we are trying to foster in students. And, and across the board in the book, the thing that I'm, I'm really trying to, to look at with that term responsible pedagogy, that kind of title for the book, is what difference it might make to think about education in terms of the sort of mutual responsibility 
um, that is shared among teachers and students and students and students in a classroom, um, not as sort of individuals who are becoming more agentive or more authoritative, but who are, um, you know, susceptible, vulnerable to each other, living alongside one another, um, and really thinking about um, responsibility in the classroom, not as something that we like build on top of agency in the sense of like, um, you know, this class is going to teach you to be a responsible citizen by like making good choices and, you know, you know, being um, ethical towards others or whatever. Uh, but in terms of just this, this inescapable kind of exposure we have to each other, um, which is sometimes um, sort of a, a wonderful thing and sometimes an immensely difficult and, and frightening thing. Um, but I think really characterizes um, so much of what makes education meaningful. And so a lot of that is looking at um, even the way that you have, you know, uh, predatory for-profit universities, companies like Turnitin recently, like ed tech companies that have really adopted the language of like agency and personalization and all of these terms that people in rhetoric and writing studies have been, you know, trying to make the case for for years, student centered, um, but really like leveraging them as these sort of like disruptive, um, like, quote unquote, disruptive sort of like capitalist forces um, that I think do some real good work of undermining the education or the, the infrastructure of public education. Um, and trying to suggest that maybe thinking in terms of, of responsibility might give us a way to sort of make the case for and think about our work as teachers, um, the possibilities of the classroom in a way that is a little bit different and I think uh, might open up some both practical and sort of ethical horizons um, that agency and authority without, you know, throwing either of them, particularly agency like out the window or anything like that, um, don't necessarily do. Thanks, Eric. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.